This is the Product of IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus privacy versus health, healthcare breach notifications for non-HIPAA apps, and the most exploited vulnerabilities since 2016. This is episode 29. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so that you can better protect your business and your identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, let's jump into it. Um, we got a lot to talk about this week and, and along the lines of privacy and um, COVID-19, not a lot of HIPAA breach news, so that's good, I suppose. Um, but before we jump into anything, of course, this week was also Patch Tuesday. Before we jump into Patch Tuesday, let's talk about whether or not you're going to comment, like, share, or review this podcast. Because if you do, we will, um, I don't know, I guess I can thank you live on the show if you do. Um, just shoot me an email so I know you did it and you can shoot the email to support at nuage.tech nwaj.tech go follow us on Facebook at nuage tech nwaj tech and um, if you're in a HIPAA compliant business if you can join our Facebook group that is centered around HIPAA compliance it is get HIPAA compliance just search for get HIPAA compliance on Facebook now as far as Patch Tuesday updates we went over a bunch of updates that were released last week so if you they'll be in the show notes but if you want to you can go back to listen to last week's episode and get the update on all those patches this week there was not as many but it is of course microsoft patch tuesday week so we have first up we have vmware publishes workarounds for vulnerabilities in vrealize operations manager so not necessarily an update as far as patching goes but it is a workaround for a known vulnerability Adobe did release security updates for Adobe Reader, Adobe Acrobat, and for Adobe DNG software development kit. So um, especially Acrobat and Reader, get those updated. But if you're also using Adobe DNG software development kit, patch that as well. And then Microsoft did release uh, patches that addressed 111 vulnerabilities, 13 of which were critical, most of them centered around uh, the usual suspects, uh, remote code execution, um, what do we got? Microsoft Edge elevation privilege vulnerability, that one is not as common, but you have remote graphics components, remote code execution, color management, remote code execution vulnerability, Microsoft SharePoint server remote code execution vulnerability, Microsoft SharePoint, I'm sorry, uh, scripting engine memory corruption vulnerability, Chakra scripting engine memory corruption vulnerability, which we seem to see those every month. Media Foundation Memory Corruption Vulnerability. Media Foundation Memory Corruption Vulnerability again. Visual Studio Code Python Extension Remote Code Execution Vulnerability. And that was the last one. So um, 
we did patch all of our client machines and our own machines this week already. Uh, no issues that we've seen. And then, of course, you have um, the vulnerabilities, the the patching from last week. So we've addressed all the patches we have in our environment. So that, you know, and that includes browsers and Adobe and things like that. Um, and we have not seen any issues. So make sure you take care of your patching. ASAP as warranted, of course, test and then push out. I have not seen any reports of problems either. So get it done. Okay, we have lots of news to share this week. Going to start with an update from Cognizant. Cognizant, you may... Remember from last week, they were hit with May's ransomware attack, um, Cognizant being probably the world's largest MSP, and with earnings in the hundreds of millions every quarter. Or Yeah, so we'll get to the numbers in a moment. But anyway, they were hit with May's ransomware attack. We know from previous episodes that May's typically exfiltrates the data first and then launches the ransomware. There has not been even any... Um, indication that that has occurred here, but uh, let's let's go with the update here. So May's ransomware attack hit the MSP and IT consulting firm in late April, according to a first quarter earning report statement released May 7th. The attack will impact Cognizant's second quarter of 2020 revenue for obvious reasons, and there may be an additional financial impact implications thereafter. So this is, you know, and there, there were a lot of ransomware attacks to report this week. Um, but this is typical of any business. When you hit, hit with ransomware, it's not just pay a ransom or restore your data from backups and be done with it. That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. It's going to cost you some money no matter what. So Cognizant in April of 2020 disclosed that the attack may impact company revenues. During a May 7th earning call, Cognizant CEO Brian Humphreys and CFO Karen McLaughlin provided additional details about the attack. MSSP alert. I'm reading this from MSSP alert, by the way. Has paraphrased the comments and company updates in these 10 points. So number one, ransomware attack cost. So far, the attack will cost Cognizant about 50 to 70 million in lost revenue and and margin for second quarter of 2020. Additionally, the company expects to incur certain legal consulting and other costs associated with the investigation, service restoration, and remediation of breach. So now you're going to have to deal with your clients who may have lost money, lost, had downtime, and so forth. Two executive efforts, Cognizant mobilized its entire leadership team when the attack was discovered in April. The company also notified law enforcement agencies at that time. Three hundreds of customer communications the communications with the clients were transparent from the start. The effort included hundreds of individual client calls with Cognizant Security Organization, cyber experts, and executive team, along with two client conference calls in April. Four indicators of compromise, so Cognizant is proactively providing clients with indicators of compromise so that they can also do their own investigations. Five latest conference calls attacked contained. Early in the week of May 4th, Cognizant held a third conference call with customers con to confirm that the attacks were contained, um, but that leaves a one to two week window where they may have been on the network and then we don't know before that how long they were on the network. Six ransomware attack 
ransomware attacks, financial impact of ransomware attack will negatively impact Cognizant's second quarter results for two reasons. First, the attack encrypted some of the IT consulting firm's internal systems, effectively disabling them, and Cognizant proactively took other systems offline. The disruption impacted work from home enablement, such as VDI, which is virtual desktops, and the provisioning of work from home laptops. Second, some clients opted to suspend Cognizant's access to their networks for obvious reasons. Again, billing was therefore impacted for a period of time, yet the cost of staffing those projects remain on Cognizant's books. So access to their networks because if ransomware is on Cognizant's network, it could jump, and you know, we just talked about um, on the daily episode, we talked about the risk with RDP, and so this this is the risk now that you have some remote desktop protocol application running, not necessarily Microsoft RDP, but or Windows RDP, but something third party, and maybe that makes their clients vulnerable. Seven work from home issues are now largely have now largely been addressed. Eight regaining customer trust. Customer network trust cognizant has meaningfully progressed in addressing the concerns of clients that have suspended our your our access to their networks. We expect to substantially complete this by the end of the month, Humphrey said. Nine financial impact timing. Most of the ransomware attacks impact on revenue and margin will occur in the second quarter. However, ongoing remediation costs will continue throughout the subsequent quarters. Cognizant plans to disclose the financial impact on a quarterly basis to ensure visibility. And then 10, lessons learned, Cognizant is applying lessons learned, applying learnings from the attack to further harden its network. Um, first quarter of 2020, Cognizant revenue was $4.2 billion, up 2.8% a year ago quarter, including a negative 50 base points impact from the exit of certain content services businesses, and then net income was $367 million compared to $441 million a year ago. So Cognizant is taking a big financial hit. And we have not seen the all the fallout from that yet, but um, we'll continue to update as we get more information. Um, Bleeping Computer is reporting that Microsoft will drop support for Windows 10 on 32-bit systems. Shouldn't really come as a surprise, nor should you be using 32-bit systems at this point. You're just not getting the full benefit of using any, not just Microsoft Windows 10, but any operating system if you're using a 32-bit system. Uh, you can't use the memory like you can with a 64-bit system and the other resources that are available because of a uh, 64-bit um, system, you, you're really not getting the full benefit. So Microsoft will stop supporting Windows 10 32-bit in the near future. Uh, Hacker News reported DigitalOcean data leak incident exposed some of its customer data. DigitalOcean, one of the biggest modern web hosting platforms, recently hit with a concerning data leak incident that exposed some of its customer data to unknown and unauthorized third parties. Though the hosting company has not yet publicly released a statement, it did ha it did start warning affected customers of the scope of the breach via an email. According to a breach notification email that affected customers received, the data leak happened due to negligence where DigitalOcean digital unintentionally left an internal document accessible to the internet without requiring any password. Now, DigitalOcean is a competitor to Microsoft Azure and a Amazon AWS, you know, those, those being the, the big players in the game. Then you have Google Cloud Platform and Alibaba, 
DigitalOcean is in there, but not quite as big. The document contained, this document contained your email address and or account name, the name you give your account at sign up, as well as some data about your account that may have included droplet account, bandwidth usage, some support or sales communication notes, and the amount you paid during 2018. The company said in a warning email, the and they did include a screenshot of the email here. So what's the concern? The concern is um, now they have enough information to potentially fish cu uh, customers or past customers of DigitalOcean. So if you are a DigitalOcean client, make sure you, um, if you get this letter, make sure you read it, understand it, and make sure you're aware that you could now potentially be fished or um, be compromised in some other manner because of it. Hacker group floods dark web with data stolen from 11 companies. So there, have been, like I said, there's been a lot of random ransomware and data leaks this week. Um, so this hacker group, a hacking group has started the flooded dark web hacking marketplace with databases containing a combined total of 73.2 million user records over 11, 11 different companies. And so here are the list of the companies. There's Toco, Tocopedia, Home Chef, Beneka, Minted, Stileshare, G Gumin, I'm not sure what that is. It's G G U M I M, Mindful, Star Tribune, Chatbooks, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Zusk. And then we we know there was, uh, I think we reported last week, a large um, Indian education platform that was compromised in the data. Oh, Una Academy. Here it is. 32, 22 million Una Academy user records are all, are also on the dark web as well. Ha, uh, Bleeping Computer also reports Revel ransomware threatens to leak A-list celebrities' legal docs. So, rans so the Nukibi ransomware group threatens to release hundreds of gigabytes of legal documents from a prominent entertainment and a law firm that counts dozens of international stars as their clients and we're talking big names here so um they grab data as soda nukibi and maze and some others do exfiltrated the data and hit them with ransomware this is a law firm in new york city uh i'm looking for the name of the new york of the law firm grubman shire Mesolis and Sachs is gsm law which is based in new york and represents dozens of heavyweight artists so some of the, the clients that they have on their list, on their roster, I should say Madonna, Lady Gaga, Elton John, Robert De Niro, Nicki Minaj, Chris Brown, Usher, U2, Timbaland, Rick Ross, and many others. Now, there is a, a screenshot of some of the data they claim to have. So as you can see the, you know, the hierarchy of the folder structure here. And I see things um, like Lady Gaga, Madonna, uh, Priyanka Chopra, U2, Kathy Sabat, Mary J. Blige, Nicki Minaj, Run DMC, you, uh, another one for U2. Um, so you can imagine Bruce Springsteen, Bette Midler. Um, you can imagine the concern here, but they, they Soto Nukibi, the people behind Soto Nukibi, claim to have all of this information and are threatening to release the list to the dark web um, legal docs, that is, if, of course, their ransom demands are not met. 
Thunderbolt on ZDNet. Thund Thunderbolt flaw affects millions of computers, even locking unattended devices won't help. So Thunderbolt type of connection on many, uh, on all Macs after 2011 and some Windows computers and Linux computers as well. So Microsoft says it sufficiently, was sufficiently concerned about the vulnerability of Thunderbolt 3 to direct media access attacks that it opted against including it on the Surface devices, but some of the Microsoft OEMs still added Thunderbolt, and all Apple Mac computers since 2011 include Thunderbolt. And then there are also some Linux computers that have it as well. So the vulnerability is called ThunderSpy, and while all Thunderbolt-equipped computers are vulnerable to ThunderSpy, Intel, which develops Thunderbolt technology, says the attacks were mitigated at the operating system level with kernel DMA protection, but this technology is limited to computers sold since 2019. So if you have a computer between 2011 and 2019 with Thunderbolt, um, you, may, you may be exposed. Um, even if your computer is put to sleep or or um, locked, you are still vulnerable. Is the point of this vulnerability? Um, so there is a little bit of back and forth between Ruttenberg, who um, identified the vulnerability with Thunderbolt, dubbed ThunderSpy, and Intel as to whether or not the vulnerability is legitimate. Um, with Intel saying that they developed Thunderbolt 3, which includes a policy management feature called security levels that lets admins use cryptographic authentication to whitelist PCIe connections to, to approve peripherals, but Ruttenberg contends that ThunderSpy completely breaks Intel's security levels because Thunderbolt suffers from inadequate firmware verification, weak device authentication, use of unauthenticated device metadata, and is vulnerable to version downgrade attacks. So, um, I don't use Thunderbolt. Can't tell you, you know, I wouldn't even, wouldn't even, I don't even think I have any devices with Thunderbolt. So, there's that. Bleeping Computer reports Texas courts, Texas courts hit by ransomware network disabled to limit spread. This was earlier in the week. Well, actually last week, a week ago today. The Texas court system was hit by ransomware on Friday night, May 8th, and, um, We've talked about this before where a lot of times ransomware attacks occur right before the weekend and right before a holiday. And that is to allow them more time to do damage. So this led to a branch network including websites and servers being disabled to block the malware from spreading to other systems. On Friday, May 8th, the Office of Court Administration, the information technology provider for appellate courts and state judicial agencies within the Texas Judicial Branch, identified a serious security event in the branch network, which was later determined to be a ransomware attack. A statement published today on the site of Ju Texas Judicial Branch says, um, I didn't see an update to this, so they were hit with a ransomware attack and uh, took everything offline to prevent the spread of the attack. And... Um, you know, Texas seems to be a popular target for ransomware attacks. It does not say who the ransomware attacker was, so I'm not sure if it's one of the ones that also exfiltrates data. We will, I will see if I can find an update for everybody. But remember, last year Texas was also hit 23 local governments, and in, in, if I'm not mistaken, that was done through OpenVPN um, and maybe RDP. So. Um, 
Texas, again, popular target, kind of like Louisiana. Bleeping Computer also reported WordPress plugin bugs can let attackers take over almost 1 million sites. So this is the Page Builder WordPress plugin, which is installed on more than 1 million sites. The vulnerabilities are cross-site re request forgery, CSRF, and that leads, that leads to reflected cross-site scripting attacks. And they affect all page builder versions up to and including 2.10.15. Attackers can't exploit these security flaws by tricking WordPress site administrator into clicking specially crafted links or attachments and execute malicious code in their browsers as well as forge requests on their behalf. The, um, they are then able to inject malicious code. And I'm looking to see if there was an update to this, but I can tell you that no millions of WordPress sites waiting for patches. Page Builder's development team updated the plugin to 2.10.16 almost a week ago to fix the two security flaws, and users are urged to patch their installations to avoid attacks. So I should have included this on the up on the patch report, patch Tuesday report. But um, this is another WordPress vulnerability. There have been quite a few of these over the last few weeks, and there was one last week that affected over a million websites. So. On bleeping computer, Maze ransomware fails to encrypt Pitney Bowes steals files. So Maze ransomware got in and was able to exfiltrate some files, but they were they were unsuccessful in launching the ransomware attack of their the ransomware portion of their attack. So they did not encrypt anything, but they did get in and exfiltrate files. This occurred on. Uh, it does not say when it happened, but it's it's it is recent. Uh, this was reported on May 11th, so that would have been Monday, and so probably over the weekend, and um, they did have the wherewithal to prevent the encryption, but it looks like, and sounds like the data leaked, the data was stolen, some data was stolen. It looks like they grabbed financial information the names of their other directories in the screenshots. So there's some screenshots here that, you know, may sent to say, hey, we've grabbed your information. So list of phones, customers, and current employees. And I see a file files here for apps, eBay and PayPal, e-commerce and finance, final reporting, forecast. So this looks like probably a network drive of some sort. So they did get the data. They did not encrypt anything. They did, They failed in that respect. All right, we have a report from Krebs on security. And I did not, interestingly enough, I did not see this anywhere else. But a ransomware hit ATM giant Diebold Nixdorf. Diebold Nixdorf, a major provider of automatic teller machines and payment technology to banks and retailers, recently suffered a ransomware attack that disrupted some operations. The company says the hackers never touched its ATMs or customer networks and that the intrusion only affected its corporate network. Canton, Ohio-based Diebold is currently the largest ATM provider in the United States with an estimated 35% of the cash machine market worldwide. The 35,000 employee company also produces point-of-sale systems and software used by many retailers. According to Diebold, on the evening of Saturday, April 25th, so a weekend, the company's security team discovered anom anomalous Behavior on its corporate network, suspecting a ransomware attack, Diebold said it immediately began disconnecting systems on the network 
to contain the spread of the malware. Sources told Krebs on security that Diebolt's response affected servers or services for over 100 of the company's customers. Diebolt said the company's response to the attack did disrupt a system that automates field service technician requests, but that the incident did not affect customer networks or the general public. Diebolt has determined that the spread of the malware has been contained, Diebolt said in a written statement provided to Krebs on security. The incident did not affect ATMs, customer networks, or the general public, and its impact was not material to our business. Unfortunately, cybercrime is an ongoing challenge for all companies. Diebold Nixdorf takes the security of our systems and customer service very seriously. Our leadership has connected personally with customers to make them aware of the situation and how we addressed it. <coughs> so, um, once again, another weekend ransom attack, ransomware attack, and this one was ProLock ransomware, which um, when it comes to ransomware, they're not... <laughs> They're clearly not one of the leaders, but they are trying. They are definitely trying. So, um, chain, it was formerly known as Pond, Pond Locker, PWND Locker. It is now called ProLock. We have a report um, US, that the U.S. warns of Chinese hackers targeting COVID-19 research orgs, organizations. This is coming from FBI and from CISA. The threat actors affiliated to the People's Republic of China are attempting to compromise and collect COVID-19 information from organizations in the U.S. healthcare, pharmaceutical, and research industry sectors. The ongoing attacks are currently investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, as stated in a joint public service announcement that was published on May 13th. China's efforts to target these sectors pose a significant threat to our nation's response to COVID-19, the FBI said. This announcement is intended to raise awareness for several institutions in the American public and provide resources and guidance for those who may be targeted. These actors have been observed attempting to identify and illicitly obtain valuable intellectual property and public health data related to vaccines, treatments, and testing from networks and personnel affiliated with the COVID-19 related research. The potential theft of this information jeopardizes the delivery of secure, effective, and efficient treatment options. So um, this also comes on the heels of, there was, I believe, a warning about North Korea, and also maybe one from Russia again. Um, there was some vague warnings about the power grid, the electric grid, for the U.S. and for Canada, and Canada was a Canadian electric or energy company was hit with a ransomware attack last week. So there appears to be an uptick in threats from that part of the world. And I, I suspect we'll see even more. Targeted COVID-19 research and response organizations are advised to take defensive measures to block potential attacks. Assume that the that press attention affiliating your organization with COVID-19 related research will lead to an increased interest in cyber activity. If your name is in the news, then they will probably look at that and say, hey, let's try. Patch all systems for critical vulnerabilities, prioritizing timely patching for known vulnerabilities of internet connected servers and software processing internet data. Actively scan web applications for unauthorized access, modification, or anomalous activities. And let's add to that, um, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Improve credential requirements and require multi-factor authentication and identify suspend access of users exhibiting unusual activity. And with that, I, uh, identify and suspend access of um, people no longer with the company or people that change departments. 
And that is going to do it for the news. So we will move on to our hot topics. All right, so first up, this was on healthitsecurity.com. FTC seeks comment on breach notification rule for health data, and this is applying to third-party applications, not through EHRs or covered entities. Stakeholders are being asked to provide comments on the FTC's breach notification rule, which requires vendors not covered by HIPAA to inform consumers and FTC of breaches within 60 days. The Federal Trade Commission is seeking comment from industry stakeholders on breach notification requirements for entities that collect personally identifiable health information but aren't covered by HIPAA regulations. As noted by a host of others in the past, including the Department of Health and Human Services, third-party apps chosen by patients are not typically covered by HIPAA. The only ones that are covered by HIPAA, not third-party applications, they would be through EHR vendors. So, um, like, Follow My Health is through... Uh, all scripts, I believe. Instead, the FTC's breach notification rule enacted in 2009 requires vendors and related entities not covered by privacy regulations to inform individuals, the FTC and the media, and in some cases of breaches of unsecured personally identifiable health data. HIPAA and the FTC's breach notification rule requires notifications to occur within 60 days of discovering the breach, and if more than 500 individuals the FTC must be notified within 10 days, which is a little more strict than, than HHS, the HIPAA rules. The rule, certain, the rule created certain protections for personal health records or PHRs, electronic records of identifiable health information that can be drawn from multiple re- sources and that are managed, shared, and controlled by or primarily for the individual, FTC officials explained. Specifically, the Recovery Act recognized that Vendors of personal health records and PHR-related entities were collecting consumers' health information but were not subject to the privacy and security requirements of HIPAA that continued. The rule requires these entities and their third-party service providers to provide notification of any breach of unsecured individually identifiable, identifiable health information. FTC is currently reviewing its health breach notification rule as part of an overall periodic review to ensure the agency keeps pace with the changes in the economy, technology, and business models. Reviews typically occur every 10 years and include standard questions around the effectiveness and, of, and potential benefits. The FTC is also reviewing whether the rule itself should be retained, changed, or eliminated and requested stakeholders to provide comment on key issues posed by the rule, such as whether it has resulted in under-notification, over-notification, or an efficient level of notification. Industry leaders can also provide feedback on whether there is a need to to modify the rule to reflect legal, economic, and technological changes, as well as whether the timing requirements and breach reporting methods are adequate. Further, the FTC is asking for insights into possible conflicts between rule and state, local, and or federal regulations. FTC is also seeking insights into enforcement implications raised by direct-to-consumer technologies and services such as mobile health apps, virtual assistance, and platform health tools, along with potential ways the rule should address developments in healthcare products or services tied to COVID-19, say like contact tracing apps, which we're going to talk about shortly. Stakeholders were also asked whether they feel there is a continuing need for specific 
provisions of the rule as well as needed benefits for consumers and evidence to support those asserted benefits. The FCC also requested insights on potentially significant costs imposed on consumers caused by the rule. Notably, the agency would also like feedback into whether the rule benefits or hinders the harmonization of the rule with HIPAA, as well as if the rule indeed accomplishes the Recovery Act's goal of advancing the use of health information technology while strengthening the privacy and security protections for health information. Industry stakeholders will have 90 days to review the request for a comment, and that is posted on the Federal Register. Now, a few things. First of all, 10 years is a long time in, in in the tech world. So 10 years ago, um, we didn't have all these mobile health applications that we have now. And we're not just talking about things like uh, like Follow My Health, even though that is not a third-party app, but something similar where a patient can request the information transferred to that application. But we're talking about things like um, like My Fitness Pal or your smartwatch that tracks your heart rate and things like that. Those are third-party applications that do track health information and could conceivably lead to a data breach uh, that would include health information for a person. Um, they would not be covered under HIPAA because they're not a covered entity and they're not a business associate. So they would not be covered under HIPAA, and that's where the FTC steps in. A lot has changed in 10 years, so there's definitely a need for changes to the rules around this. Um, also, there was a point here that I wanted to, to um, address, and that is the COVID-19 tracing apps. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but we don't really know 100% what that looks like yet, and I think there will be issues when it comes to privacy with these things. Um, Google has been trying to get their hands, and I think even Apple to an extent, has been trying to get their hands on healthcare data for a long time for obvious reasons. The reasons are in the healthcare is a business that's never going to go away, and in fact, in some ways, will probably grow. Um, <clears throat> they want to remain relevant and remain financially secure. These are massive organizations that have um, access to things that most organizations don't have access to so they want more so it'll be interesting to see how that develops how this rule develops and i think you're going to see that this may at some point tie into some of the data breach rules data breach laws data breach laws we're starting to see like ccpa in california and the shield law in new york and things like that so um 90 days to review this was posted um, earlier this week if you want to comment on it, it is available on the federal federal register. That is regulations.gov. You can go there and um, comment on it. Uh, the second thing we're going to share today, U.S. government shares list of most exploited vulnerabilities since 2016. This is on bleeping computer. U.S. government cybersecurity agencies and specialists today have released a list of top 10 routinely exploited security vulnerabilities between 2016 and 2019. This was shared on Tuesday. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is CISA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the broader U.S. government issued the AA20-133A alert through the National Cyber Awareness System to make it easier for organizations from the public and private sector to prioritize patching in their environments. The public and private sectors should de could degrade some foreign cyber threats to U.S. interests through an increased effort to patch their systems and implement program 
to keep system patching up to date now. So what does that mean? It means that the U.S. government has recognized that North Korea, China, Russia, and some other countries, some other nation states may be trying to exploit these vulnerabilities that exist, and some of these vulnerabilities go back years. And so they recognize that also there are businesses in the private and public sector that have these vulnerabilities still. A concerted campaign to patch these vulnerabilities would introduce friction into foreign adversaries, operational tradecraft, and force them to develop or acquire exploits that are more costly and less widely effective and probably harder to deal with. Um, based on U.S. government's analysis of cyber attacks, abusing security vulnerabilities, threat actors have most often exploited bugs in Microsoft's object linking and embedding OLE technology with the Apache Struts web framework being the second most reported exploited technology. Of the top 10 to three vulnerabilities used most frequently across state-sponsored cyber attacks from China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia, RCVE 2017 2017-1188, 2017-0199, 2012-0158. Now, the first set of numbers on these CVEs are the year. So this one goes back, that last one goes back to 2012. So that is eight years old. CISA says all three of these vulnerabilities are related to Microsoft's OLE technology. However, Chinese hackers have frequently exploited CVE 2012-0158, starting with December 2018, showing that organizations have failed to patch it and that the malicious actors will continue abusing such flaws as long as they are not fixed. In 2020, CISA says that attackers have been hard at work exploiting unpatched Citrix, Citrix VPN, which was CVE 2019-11510, and Pulse Secure VPN 2019-19781. So these are both last year, and Pulse secure vpn is a big problem because even if you've patched it and they've already if they've already compromised it they're already on your network and they're already still able to continue to exploit uh other vulnerabilities in your network uh after and so now that more people are working from home that's an even bigger issue so here is the top 10 routinely exploited security flaws since 2016. so i want to start with cve 2012 0158, the associated malware was Tridex, but the exploit, the vulnerability is found in various versions of Microsoft Office and Microsoft SQL Server and so forth. So it's Microsoft products, which are routinely, routinely have patches available to them that it's not getting uh, pitched, uh, it's not getting patched, sorry. I just tried to combine patched and fixed, so... Um, but we have vulnerabilities going back to 2012, 2015, 2017, 18, 19, uh, you know, 19 not being that long ago, but still. So these are the, the list of the top, 20, top 10 vulnerabilities are linked to this article and um, the associated malware. So you have Loci, Formbook, Pony, Ferret, FinSpy, LatentBot, Drydex, we already mentioned, Jexboss. China Chopper, Dog Call, Internal Synergy, and Eternal Blue. You remember, you may remember Eternal Blue from WannaCry, um, Toshlif, Unwarrior, and Kitty. Um, the Eternal Blue compromised versions of Windows Vista, Windows 7, and those are still out there. I just saw recently somebody I know with a Windows a version of Windows 7 still running. 
So um, they're still out there. They're still out there, and, and that's a problem because you're, you're vulnerable. Um, so check out that article on bleepingcomputer.com, the 10 most exploited vulnerabilities in the last four years. And if, you, if you're guilty of any of those, get them taken care of. All right, the last thing we're going to talk about in our hot news for today is the contract contact tracing applications that either are developed or work being worked on um, I have three separate articles that show a concern um, for privacy in reality so the first one was reported on threat post leaked NHS docs reveal roadmap concerns around contact tracing app so NHS is UK's Nas national health service they were storing they haven't developed an app yet they were storing information in Google Docs that information was leaked. So a COVID-19 contact tracing app to be rolled out by the UK's National Health Service has been thrust into the spotlight thanks to sensitive documents being leaked via a public Google Drive link. Contact tracing has emerged as a top idea for dealing with the coronavirus pandemic and is considered by many to be an important step towards reopening economies worldwide. However, with several initiatives underway to use mobile phone apps to carry it out, privacy concerns have come to the forefront. The NHS app is no exception with detractors concern about how the information it collects could be used. The leaked NHS, NHS documents reported by Wired showed that the officials behind the initiatives are also concerned specifically around about how unverified information could be used. So this particular post raises a couple of concerns one is um how is the information going to be used right so if i decide to opt in and it, and it, in the u.s anyway it's going to be you can opt in you don't have to you're not being forced to do it but you can opt into doing it so if you do have symptoms you put the information into the app in the u.s this is how they're planning to do it you put your information into the app it's supposed to be anonymous and if you are um if it is determined that you had COVID-19, then that is updated. And now that anybody, now anybody who's opted in to this will be notified that they have come into close contact with you. Um, and then there's, there's some guidelines around what's considered close contact, right? So the concern one is, uh, is, is my privacy secure? Is my privacy, is there a potential for privacy issues within the application? And in the U.S., the Android, Google, and Apple are planning to do this at the operating system level, meaning they will, there won't be a third-party app eventually. Right now, there are companies working on third-party apps, and we're going to talk about that shortly. One of them in Utah. Um, but what are the potential repercussions to my privacy? and health information being put into an application that by the way works with bluetooth which has several vulnerabilities um so that's number one number two what happens if i want to be funny and i upload the wrong information so i'm i am sick and i put that i'm not sick or i'm not sick and i put that i am sick to to cause fear um so that's another concern that i don't know how they can address that um, because it's supposed to be anonymous. So I can, if, if it is anonymous, I could put whatever information I want in and nobody will know it's me, theoretically. So already in the UK, somebody got a hold of publicly uh, a, a link that was public, 
on Google Drive that had some information in regards to the application being developed in the UK. But let's take it a step further now. Now we have a woman in New Zealand who is being stalked after um, going to Subway, the Subway restaurant, and she put her information on the, uh, I guess the, in there they have to write down contact details, including name, email address, uh, uh, physical address, and I think phone number. And um, she did this and then started getting essentially stalked by an employee at Subway. So now that's part two of the problem. So this, here's another, another example of privacy information private information being leaked um, to someone who probably should not have had it. So why this is, I compare this to, um, I used to see, my doctor used to keep a clipboard in the waiting area. You would come in, you would put your name, the reason you were there and who you were, who you were there to see. And that clipboard sat at the front desk for the whole world to see. And so this is the same thing essentially, right? I'm writing down my name, email addresses, phone number and physical address and uh, anybody else can see it including employees but also um, other customers can see it uh, potentially so if you're if this is just like a, a mailing list you're putting your name on which is what it kind of sounds like then now you have other people seeing your name address phone number and physical address name address email address and physical yeah, I'll get it right. Name, address, and email address, and phone number, and potentially the whole world sees it. That it, you know, that could be cause for concern. Absolutely, right. And this was a woman, and um, she even goes on to state that if she did live alone, she doesn't. That she she lives with several roommates. It sounds like, but if she did live alone, then uh, she could feel even more uneasy about what happened and then this also opens up things like um, spear phishing um, using social engineering different forms of social engineering there's a lot of different little cyber activity cyber crimes that can be com com committed because this information is now somewhat publicly available and then we have another article, this one on ThreatPost, about um, a company called Healthy Together, an application called Healthy Together, being developed out of Salt Lake City or out of Utah. Um, they're saying no to Apple and Google COVID-19 tracing. And I get that, but they're going to go with a third-party app, which, in my opinion, is probably less secure than using Google or Apple. So Healthy Together app uses a raft of location data including GPS, cell tower, triangulation, and Bluetooth. Again, Bluetooth being um, having several vulnerabilities to pinpoint users and ID coronavirus hotspots. Um, I, just to give you an example of, of Bluetooth and how it works, I um, one of my children's activities, one of their teachers tries to connect her phone to Bluetooth speakers and... Every time she tries, it attempts to connect to my phone. And I deny it because I'm not a bad person. But if I had accepted it, I now conceivably have access to everything on her phone. Who knows what's on that phone, right? That's how Bluetooth works. And if you're in close proximity to something like that, 
it's not hard to grab Bluetooth information off of, a, of another device. And we've seen it already with Tesla, their cars. We've seen it already with um, their entertainment systems. We've seen it with other phones. We've seen it with Bluetooth devices. When you rent a car, if you don't remove your phone's information from the Bluetooth connection, then you, I mean, even if you do, you might, you might be at risk. Um, and I've rented cars where I've seen five or six other phone information still there after being rented, after being returned. Now, we have um, Utah wanting to use this application from, it's called Healthy Together, it's called, and it's from a startup company called 20 Holdings, and they had already developed a social application that lets users see who's around, see who's down, and hang out, and that's, I guess that's their, um, their tagline. In other words, the company specializes in enabling physical in-person connections. It's perhaps no surprise that 20's coronavirus app for Utah uses a raft of location data, including GPS cell tower triangulation and Bluetooth to pinpoint users. Now, that that to me is cause for concern, privacy concerns. Like, what? Why do you? Why would you want that information out there? I get the reasoning behind it, so don't get me wrong. I understand we want to slow the progress of COVID-19 down. Um, and, and from the information I've seen in the last few days, it sounds like we're already on that. But um, so just to give you an idea of how it works. So Jeff and Sarah are two individuals. This is a, uh, as an example. This is not real people. Jeff and Sarah are two individuals in this example who don't know each other but they both have the app on their phones. He told the outlet. And so both phones are emitting Bluetooth and GPS signals. All good said. So all good being the um, chief strategy officer at 20. Through that data, we can identify whether or not two people have spent some time together from there. Contact tracers can swing into action, making calls and contacted infected and exposed persons, other contacts. So, do, do you can see where I hope you can see where that could be a concern, a big privacy concern. Um, again, I get the idea behind it. I don't know that it's worth the privacy concerns. Let's educate the population. Let's tell everybody, hey, this is what what the symptoms are. This is what you need to be look out. This is how you need to protect yourself. This is what you need to do. And then let's let it go from there. I think what what you're going to see is um, this technology somehow will get abused, whether it's the company creating the application and they even say where some people within the organization will have access to that data um, or somebody uh, finding a vulnerability and utilizing it or somebody using false information. So there's too much potential damage that can occur from an application like that they're probably going to move forward with it to be honest with you so google and apple and maybe some other companies um and other countries are already doing this so um my concern is privacy All right, so we're going to continue with our HIPAA education. We started a few weeks ago around 
cybersecurity practices for small healthcare organizations. This is according to the 405D um, project to improve cybersecurity in healthcare organizations. And um, this week we're going to talk about asset management, asset management. So what are we doing to secure our assets, our servers, our computers, our healthcare equipment, and so forth. Um, Organizations manage IT assets using processes referred to collectively as IT asset management. ITAM is critical to ensuring that the appropriate cyber hygiene controls are maintained across all assets in your organization. ITAM processes should be implemented for all endpoints, all endpoints. There's always that one breach where, oh, we didn't think that was needed. Um, Servers and networking equipment. ITAM processes enable organizations to understand their devices and the best options to secure them. The practices described in this section may be used to support many of the practices described in other sections of this volume. So let's talk what we have here. First of all, you need to do an inventory. And again, this is all based on the NIST cybersecurity framework, NIST cybersecurity framework. A complete and accurate inventory of IT assets in your organization facilitates the implementation of optimal security controls. This inventory can be conducted and maintained using a well-designed spreadsheet um, the following information should be captured for each device. So you should capture I- asset ID, primary key, host name, purchase order, operating system, media access control address, that's the MAC address, that's the uh, MAC address is assigned to any piece of hardware that connects to a network, IP address deployed to, who is it deployed to, user last logged on, which, you know, that's that's kind of ongoing, but purchase date, cost, and physical location. Now, the user logged on can be, ma- uh, last logged on can be monitored, so you, you can um, you can continually track that. Um, most important, probably asset IDs, operating system, MAC addresses, IP addresses, and who was deployed to, especially with the current work from home environment. Procurement and um, with that, once you have established your ITAM spreadsheet, it is important to record each new IT asset as it is re- acquired. This re- requires establishing standard operating procedures for p- procurement. Generally, it is advisable to assign the responsibility of collecting information on new assets to the purchaser within your organization. And then decommissioning, which is probably the most important piece, right? IT assets that are no longer functional or require, well, maybe not the most important, but it's, it's close to inventory. Required should be decommissioned in accordance with your organization's procedures. Small organizations often contact contract with an outside service provider specializing in secure destruction processes. Such providers can ensure that all data, especially sensitive data, are properly removed from a device before it is turned over to other parties. Additionally, your standard operating procedures should ensure that you record the de- decommissioning of each device. If you use a service provider to decommission or destroy devices, Record the certification of destruction so there is never a question about what happened to it. What is mitigated by this um, these activities? So you have ransomware attacks, loss of or theft of equipment or data, insider accidental or intentional data loss, and attacks against connected medical devices that may affect patient safety. Um, asset management is important because things walk away. 
and I and we see it time and time again. They walk away, and um, they then the healthcare provider realizes, hey, that wasn't encrypted, and now you have a problem because now you have potentially um, thousands or or even in some cases millions of healthcare records now just out there, and no idea what is going to come of it. You know, we saw a HIPAA breach a few weeks ago, I think, where some hard drives went dis went missing. Um, the hard drives were not encrypted. Now, the response from the healthcare provider was that you need specialized software to be able to see the information on those hard drives. But let me tell you, software is not hard to come by. Um, it, that, so that response is not, to me, is not a good response. The, the hard drives not encrypted is a problem. The hard drives being able to walk away as easily as they did. They were in a locked room, but the person who took them out of the locked room didn't realize the room was supposed to be locked, thought it was just because it was time of the day. They walked out, never to be seen again. Um, it doesn't take much to get required software to view healthcare records. And if so, if that's the intention of the theft, maybe it's not the intention. Maybe the intention is, hey, I just found some hard drives I could use. But if that is the intention, then it's not going to be hard to get that information if it's not encrypted. So um, asset management, know where they are, track them, use barcodes, bar use a barcode reader. You can get, you could put a barcode reader on a smartphone and print labels off with a barcode, with, a, with any printer, really. There's printers out there that can do that. So put a barcode on the device. Scan it, you're done with it. Well, if you can believe this, we only have one HIPAA breach to report this week. Uh, Fortune 500 company Magellan Health has announced that it experienced a ransomware attack in April that resulted in the encryption of files and theft of some employee information. The ransomware attack was detected by Magellan Health on April 11th when files were encrypted on its systems. The investigation into the attack revealed the attacker had gained access to its systems following a response to a spear phishing email sent on April 6th. The attacker had fooled the employee by impersonating a client of Magellan Health. Magellan Health engaged the cybersecurity firm Mandiant to assist with the investigation into the breach, which revealed the attacker had gained access to a corporate server that contained employee information and exfiltrated a subset of that data prior to the encryption of the files. The attacker also downloaded malware that was used to steal login credentials. The data stolen by the hacker related to current employees and included names, addresses, employee ID numbers, and W-2 and 1099 information, which included taxpayer IDs and social security numbers. A limited number of users' names and passwords were also stolen in the attack. Magellan Health is unaware of any attempts to use that data, but has advised affected individuals to be alert to the possibility of identity theft and misuse of their data. Affected individuals have been offered a complimentary three-year membership to experience Identity Works Identity Theft Detection and Resolution Service. Magellan Health is working closely with law enforcement and is aggressively investigating the breach and steps have already been taken to improve security to prevent similar breaches in the future, of course. It is currently unclear how many individuals have been affected by the breach. The ransomware attack comes just a few months after the company discovered 
Some of its subsidiaries suffered phishing attacks. Magellan RX Management, Magellan Healthcare, and National Imaging Associates were all affected. Announcements about the breaches were made in September and November of 2019, with the phishing attacks following. Oh, I'm sorry, with the phishing attacks allowing unauthorized inv individuals to gain access to employee email accounts in July of 2019. The emails in the compromised accounts contained the protected health information of 55,637 members. So this that goes back to last July. It's conceivable that the two are tied together, right? So they got some information from that attack back in July of last year and then used it to fish someone else this year because it says spear phishing email. Spear phishing means it was somebody that was targeted in the organization. So it's conceivable that the information from last year's attack was used in this year's attack. Uh, and that's why you have to be careful with that information. And that's why you have to teach your employees how to recognize phishing attacks. And that's why you have to set up multi-factor authentication. So it sounds like Magellan, which is a Fortune 500 company, is not uh, not taking that information seriously. And then, of course, you always have these information where these responses where they say, you know, they're aggressively investigating and they're taking steps to improve security to prevent a similar incident. But, hey, just happened 10 months ago. So, um, all right, that is going to do it for the Product of IT podcast. Until next week, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay secure.